The Ogallala High Plains Aquifer underlies about 174,000 square miles of the central United States and provides nearly all the water for residential, industrial, and agricultural use in the High Plains region. Every year, 94% of groundwater pulled from the aquifer is used for irrigated agriculture. Little of this water is replaced by recharge, and parts of the aquifer are in a state of overdraft and could run dry within a few decades. The Kansas Geological Survey has data on aquifer water levels going back to the 1930s, and they've collected level data annually since the mid-1990s. Today, researcher and field hydrogeologist Ed Rebele gathers water level measurements from 1,400 monitoring wells in the western part of the state. With access to more and better data from improved remote monitoring technologies that deliver a continuous stream of data from several of his wells year-round, Ed's in a better position than most to characterize the state of the High Plains Aquifer and sound the alarm on the prospects for its future. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Aquapod, where we share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor with In-Situ. I'm Adam Hobson, Institute's Application Development Manager for Groundwater. And with us today is Ed Rebele, Senior Research Assistant and Field Hydrogeologist with the Kansas Geological Survey. Ed, welcome. Well, uh, thank you. So, Ed, we were eager to have you on the podcast for a few reasons. First, through your years of annual and now continuous monitoring, you have rare insight into the stability of one of the biggest aquifers in the world, and certainly one of the most critical in North America, the Ogallala High Plains Aquifer. And second, we've worked with you for a long time, and we've had something of a shared journey in the development of continuous monitoring capabilities, and telemetry in particular. So we wanted to talk to you about that evolution and what new technology for remote data collection potentially means for your work. So maybe you can start us off by just telling us a little bit about your work. Um, You've been monitoring the groundwater that supports America's breadbasket for many years now. Maybe tell us about the early years of your career uh, when your monitoring was really limited to annual trips west to hand measure wells. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, when I started at the survey in 2007, um, we were measuring hand measuring wells once a year and the Ogallala Aquifer, which is, we call in the state of Kansas, it's the High Plains, the section that's in here. Um, we measure about 1,400 wells a year by hand every January, the Kansas Geological Survey, and at the Department of Water Resources, DWR, um, measure those wells annually. When I first started, my first project that they had already had funded was to put three monitoring wells in the three lobes of the high plains that come into Kansas because everything was based off this snapshot of one week, first week in January every year, that's what the water levels were. So I went out, sat on a drill rig and was a geologist on the rig and we drilled three wells and we put a data logger in the well, pressure transducer data loggers, And at that time, they were all hooked up to the Iridium satellite system because there was no cell phone coverage in that part of Kansas. (laughs) So we started to see the use of the usefulness of having 24-7 monitoring because of the difference in what you see in January and what you see in August, the quantity of water left in the aquifer. So where did that data end up taking you? Um, it's taken us to, um, 
trying to get more and more of them in. Uh, people started seeing the value of the water, that, that kind of data. The DWR measured some of the wells on a quarterly basis, but I mean, they only measured like maybe 10% of the 1,400 wells. And those 1,400 wells are a very small fraction of the 28,000 active groundwater to points of diversion in Western Kansas. So there's 28,000 irrigation well points in Kansas, in the High Plains. So Ed, tell me more about that, that there's 28,000 diversion points, basically yeah. pumping wells, and okay. that's supporting primarily agriculture, right? Yeah, so those are all, most of those are, actually probably all those are agriculture because there's an additional 27,000 domestic or stock wells out there. Because the stock you- well falls under the domestic category, if it does small herd. Right. And are you, are you monitoring those as well? No, no, um, not really. We don't measure those. We only measure the irrigation wells. And it's all steel tape measurements. If you, mm-hmm. if you remember steel tape, mm-hmm. <laughs> the chalk on the tape, put the tape down the well and look at your cut point on your chalk. <laughs> yeah. So obviously that's a lot of use on the aquifer, on the high plains, on the Ogallala. Um, what have you been seeing? Um, consistent declines. Yeah. When I was in high school many, many, many moons ago, <laughs> um, my geology class said they were mining the Ogallawa aquifer. Fast forward 40 years and guess what? They're still mining the Ogallawa aquifer. What does that mean? There, it's just like coal mining. You're pulling something out that's not going back. The replenishment of the aquifer is extremely low. In some areas, it's non-existent. Uh, some areas, it actually, we have a in central Kansas where the High Plains comes in. It's shallow. I'm talking 50, 40, 50 feet there. It actually gets recharged from the surface, so it actually fluctuates around a pretty steady area. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down, but it's pretty steady. In Western Kansas, my depths to water range from 150 feet to 400 feet to water. So even if, even if there is recharge, it's going to be hundreds of years before that water trickles through all that sediment to get back down to the aquifer. And most of that recharge, is that through just precipitation and streams? For the central Kansas, it's through precipitation and streams. Through western Kansas, like I said, it's not really recharge, but there is inflow, and it's mostly lateral. And we can see that in the hydrographs from what we're seeing from the date. Now that we have these sensors out there, you can see that what happens during the non-pumping season and see that the water is still is still recovering in some of those wells all the way until the following year when they start pumping in. It never comes to a steady state. It's always recovering. And we know that it's not coming from the surface, uh, so it has to be lateral inflow into those areas. So Ed, the data the data go back how far? To the to the 40s? Is that my understanding? The there are hand measurements in our database back to the 30s. 1930s, wow. Yes. Um, they, they say pre-development of the aquifer was around the, it was in the 50s. 
what development meant was center pivot irrigation in most cases. Um, and that really took off in the 60s, and you can see it. We've been doing the annual water level program at the survey. We've been running it since 96. And before that, the USGS was actually running it. And I think they started in the eight, early 80s. But there are hand measurements from the Department of Water Resources and farmers themselves. Um, people were taking water level measurements on their own, and they these are all in our database now. That's great. Now, so Ed, this raises an interesting question. Um, so obviously, we're seeing an impact here to the Ogallala uh, to the high plains in particular. Um, it sounds like it was pretty, the, the measuring was, was pretty uh, different organizations, different agencies handling it early on. Um, but what's happening now with the measurement? Sounds like uh, either through Kansas Geological Survey, USGS, uh, Department of Water Resources, other things like that. Is there kind of uh, more of a centralized system for that now? Yeah, the, uh, the measurements are all in the database on the, Kansas Geological Survey's server. Um, anybody can get to the data. We also have water use data, which is one of the benefits of the state of Kansas. Every irrigation well is metered and has okay. been metered since 2016 or 2017. The law went into effect like 20, 2007, and they gave them 10 years to get everything metered. Okay. Before that, it was all... Um, they had to re they've had to report water level water use since the 60s 70s um, but it was all the farmers you know my my well pumps 300 gallons a minute and I ran it for X number of days right and it was that's how the water levels were reported because everybody's on a water right mm -hmm. and you're only allowed so much water something I had to learn by moving from the east to the west yes yes <laughs> so and that's an interesting, interesting little segue. So tell us a little bit about that journey in kind of understanding the difference for water rights in Kansas as what they might be, you know, certainly in the eastern United States, but also in other parts of the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, our big, I'm from Ohio. Our biggest concern was to get rid of the, how much, how to get rid of the water without flooding everything, how to get rid of all that <laughs> rainfall. Um, then you get out here and everybody wants to, keep the water and then everybody's entitled to by water, right? You're entitled to so much water. So it's, it's, it's considered a property right in the state of Kansas, even though the water is quote unquote owned by the state of Kansas mm -hmm. and it's to be used for the benefit of Kansas. Each far, each farmer out there has a water right that entitles them to so much water. And then you get into acre feet and, Trying to figure out what an acre foot was was <laughs> interesting also. <laughs> it's one of those measurements that uh, again, I think oh, you know, here in the US we try to have to we have to explain to everybody else in the world what it actually Yeah, they're like, well, how many cubic meters is that? <laughs> I have no idea. Let, let me pull out my phone. I have a conversion on my You're right. Right. Um, what is the um, in, I'm assuming in Kansas, it's similar to other Western states that are under what's, what's called the prior appropriation, uh, yeah. that they have a provision that is use it or lose it. Um, they, Kansas kind of did away with that a few years back because okay. they didn't want people using it unnecessarily. 
So, I mean, that, that's interesting because that obviously that that sounds like that's been an evolution in the law. Yeah, um, and it, it was it was done. It's and that was done since I've been here, and it was kind of pushed by. We're using so much water now; it's being depleted. Where are we making them waste water mm-hmm. instead of have that water there for the future? Right, right, right. So, but nobody wanted to give up their property right either. So you can't don't want don't want you to don't want to lose anything because if I sell my land that's a valuable part of my land is selling that water right with my land. Right. And that, and that, that goes with it. That's the, in many yeah, cases, it goes with it or it can be sold separately. Right. Right. Are you seeing, are you, are you, are you, is that a challenge for you in a monitoring st- standpoint for maybe having the water right that's separate from the land? Does that, does that affect you where, you know, maybe it's, maybe uh, it's being used for something else other than irrigation. Um, it doesn't affect us directly because we have no regulatory authority in the state of Kansas. So all I do is gather and that, that that's good for me because it allows me to tell the people out in Western Kansas that, you know, I can't tell you anything. I'm just here to collect data. Right. I have no regulatory authority. I collect data, I compile it and it's presented to the powers that be, but we have no, direct authority over telling you you have to use it they have to cut water we just tell what happens if you cut water what could happen or how much longer can you get out of it does that make it easier for you to be out there talking with them because it it does make it a lot easier for me to be out there um you know i don't have to use the old reagan line i'm from the government and i'm here to help you (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's it probably doesn't doesn't work so well in in Western Kansas. No, and and but by saying you know I'm from the survey and all I do is collect data, I provide I collect and provide the data, and you're welcome to see the data that I collect. It's public, so that helps a lot. Kind of getting into where that data is actually going. Does it help to explain to a farmer that this data can actually help maybe preserve the resource a little bit? Yeah, it it it. Allowing a lot of them to look at the big picture even more than just, you know, just what's happening there in their own farms. And I mean, there's the farmers out there are not dumb. They're smart. Mm-hmm. And we can tell where the edges of the aquifer is because you look at a set, you look at Google Earth and you can see where the circles stop. <laughs> you can pretty well say there's probably not any water on the other side of that edge where the circles stop. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess here's the, what's your time frame for how much water's, how much water's left? That's where all of this really came to fruition. When we started putting, we put these first three wells in, put a scent, dropped a pressure transducer in there, had the data at our desktops and we could watch in the summertime. In January, when we go out there, we'd go in January because Usually, usually nobody's pumping. The aquifer has had some time to recover and relax from being drawn down. And if we do it at the same time every year, we get this snapshot. So, like I said, it's been done since it's been done since the early '80s by the USGS or us. Since the '90s, we've done it exclusively in Kansas with the help of DWR doing measurements. 
we do the modeling and put together and we know where the bottom of the aquifer is from drill logs. Mm -hmm. Like I said, there's 28,000 irrigation wells, 27,000 domestic wells plus old wells that aren't there. We have 60, 70,000 drill records in the state of Kansas. Wow. So we can map out the bottom of the aquifer by looking at drillers logs. Mm -hmm. We know where the water tape, we know where the water level is in January. So you can say that's the, the aquifer thickness is from the water level to the bottom of the aquifer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So on a yearly average, that aquifer is losing two, say we're, say it's losing two feet a year. Mm -hmm. It's at 200 feet of thickness. Okay. You got a hundred years of water left. Right. At that rate. Well, that's considering that rate's constant, mm -hmm. which we know it's not because geology isn't constant through the geologic column. It changes. You know, some years it might lose a foot, some years it might lose five feet, depending on where you're pulling the water out of. But what we found in these sensors, in one location specific, our southern lobe, um, it's a confined aquifer down there. So in the summertime, in January, it had 250 feet of water. And it was going down about five feet a year. Mm -hmm. So you had 50 years of water. Mm-hmm. In the summertime, in all, late August, it had 50 feet of water wow. because that's how far it was being – it was drawing down 200 feet. Feet, right. So at the end of the summer, you had 50 feet of water at the bottom of the aquifer. Well, we found out the second year, that bottom is also going down five feet a year. So it was 50 feet, then it was 45 feet, and then it was 40 feet hmm. because you're using that – Holes, you know, you're losing five feet at the top, but you're also losing five feet at the bottom during the summer. Mm -hmm. So, okay, if you're you've got 50 feet, you're losing five feet a year, you've got 10 years of water left, right? Not, not, not 50, you now have 10. It's you're you're it's the you're almost burning the candle at both ends, <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you got 10, you know, we've always told you had 50. Well, we were wrong, wow. you have 50 if the, you have 50 if you don't pump. If you pump the way you're pumping, you've got. 10 and now it's been more than 10 years and they're still pumping water, but you can actually see in the records that they're having to turn the pumps on and off to get the water out of the part of the aquifer. And some, mm -hmm. sometimes it dry, dry, their pump will pump dry. So they have to turn it off for a few days in order to turn it back on for a day. Okay. So I guess that's a, a kind of a good segue into other things like what um, what kind of management decisions or, or management practices have changed in kind of based on the data and kind of what you're seeing? There's been a lot of talk, <laughs> a lot of discussion. Um, there has been um, a couple areas. There's that started about 2011, 12, they started up a program called a LEMA, which is a local area enhanced management. Hmm. And they decided they would do it from the ground up. So it's the local people getting together and saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cut use by this. We're going to do this, 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 and then it's presented to the state. And then the chief engineer of the state gets to say yay or nay. And that's all they get to do is, yes, that, that plan works. No, that plan doesn't. But it has to go through from the bottom up. 
the state is a regulatory agency. We, like I said, we don't regulate, but the part of the state that does, they can say, we've had interactions where you, the guy, the neighbor is pumping water and interfering with the right of the senior water right user to get his water. So the guy who has water right number one mm-hmm. gets all the water he's entitled to. Right. Well, and, and that that's a, that's that that is a fundamental kind of structure of prior appropriation. First, so. first, first in time, first in right. Exactly right. <laughs> so right. there are the you know when it gets to that point, um, the WR and us will look at we'll we'll actually start monitoring more wells just to come up with some plan on how to reduce that. But then some they've recently uh, some of those cases have been gone to court. And the court, when they say make it to the court, the judge really has nothing to do but say, you have water right number one, you have water right number 2000, mm-hmm. you have to turn off. Right. But it, but it does need to go to that level. That is actually. Yeah. Well, you, you, you try to work it. the state tries to work it out before it gets to that. You know, let, why don't, why don't you reduce by. Five percent, you reduce by forty percent, and we'll get you. You both get the water, some water. Hmm. Okay, and the, again, the water level data has been able to really support that. Yeah, it's been able to support. Uh, you know, the air, look at the areas that are under higher stress from these maps we make every year of saturated thickness, and then how much it goes down each year. Mm-hmm. Um, which areas are under higher stress? The area I was mentioning, they did this first in Lima is up in Northwest Kansas. And um, they, the local guys got together and they decided to reduce their overall water usage over a five-year period. I don't, I think it was like a 20% reduction over five years, but it wasn't 20% a year. It was over a five-year mm. allotment. So you could use all the, you could use all the water you wanted in year one and year two and year three. But, in total, over five years, you could only use 80% of your five-year allotment. So right. whether you used it all in the first year or you used it sparingly. And that has been going on for about eight years now, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, the, first of all, they found out they were they, – the groundwater management district in Kansas – each part of the Ogallala is under its own groundwater management district. So you got the rent, you got the farmers and you got a groundwater management district that kind of oversees everybody. And there, and then, the, then you got the state above that. And this groundwater management district wanted to encourage these guys to do this and help them as much as they could. And they went out and bought a bunch of soil moisture probes <laughs> and some of the farmers realized that they were using too much water. You know, I got corn planted. I guess we don't need a soil profile down to five feet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So they could reduce water and save water and still get decent yields. They didn't have to go to dry land farm. They were still getting yields. Um, Yes, their yields decreased, but they also found out their expenses decreased. Right. You know, they weren't pumping that much water. They weren't running the pumps, fuel maintenance, mm-hmm. everything that goes along with running that pump. And when you're pulling water from, you know, 150 feet down, it costs money to lift that water up to the surface. Right. So, so without, yeah, 
it came out to, I, I think the ag guys, the ag economist over at Kansas State University came out and said that they basically broke even. Hmm. I mean, their yields weren't the same, but their net was the same. Hmm. Okay. okay. So that whole groundwater management district now is under Lima. They've created one for the entire district. Other districts would like to, but you have people that say, oh, no, <laughs> do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to cut down what I'm using. I, I, I'm sitting on a good part of the aquifer and, you know, I want to use my water. Yeah. I want to monetize my water. Yep. Well, and change, change can be difficult. Uh, I think that's, that's what it seems like is, is a big part of it. Uh, but again, I, my, my sense is, uh, I know from, from my experience anyway, has been that dealing with the fire appropriation system that, uh, again, because it is a property right, um, there's a potential feeling that, you know, you're, that, you know, by them reducing their, their the use of their property, they're going to lose their property. Yeah. Um, it could be a, you know, it's a, it's a real feeling. Um, with that said, I think, you know, that that's certainly something for others to, to, to tackle, but it does sound like it's interesting to hear that, you know, at least more data in that case, whether it's measuring soil moisture or, you know, pumping rates and water levels and that stuff can actually really lead to, um, to better decision-making. Um, yeah. Management. And that's, and that's, that's, it's the management. And like you said, some of them, some of the, some of the, some of the guys out there, the old school that it's my property, it's my right. Mm-hmm. And some of them had that attitude, and it's slowly changing now that their kids are coming back from college and want to farm on the family farm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. well, maybe I we should maybe we should think about doing something so that my kids can make a living doing this. Yes, it's one yep. generation, really. I mean, that's what they're looking at in some cases. Sounds like, yeah. And some in some cases, the the as much as the water. I mean. It's been decreasing since the 60s. You can look at some of the graphs on our website, pull up some of the old wells, and you can see right when the center pivot irrigation came up, and it just starts going down. It just drops right off. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, wow. it's, a, it's a huge change in slope. Um, Ed, are you seeing any impacts of changing climate, changing precipitation patterns or temperatures or anything like that having impacts on it? Um, we see some of it. I mean – Western Kansas um, is a lot like Eastern Colorado. Yep. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of rain. Yep. Uh, the rain out there, you can get some areas are less than 20 inches a year, less than 10 inches a year during drought years. Mm-hmm. And then the Eastern part over here on this side of the state, we get the same rain as Seattle. We average about 35, 36 inches of rain a year. Wow. Right. So there's a huge gradient across Kansas. That. Well, when you do get these storms that come through Kansas, just like the storm you guys just had, <laughs> you get the weather, you get these weather patterns and it just keeps going in a straight line over the top of the same area all day long. Mm-hmm. So you, we can actually see some of these rain streaks in usage and in water level. And the, the water level change wow. is decreased, not because of recharge, but because of people turning their pumps off. So you're not pumping as much. Okay. The first year we put these mon- these things in, it started raining out there. And these guys say, see, there's recharge. And it's like, no, last year you pumped 160 days. I can see that on my data. It's coming from my sensor. I can see when you turn the pumps on and when you turn the pumps off. You pump for 160, 180 days. 
the year that you got all the rain, you only pump for 60 days or 45 days. Mm -hmm. So it's not really recharging the surface. It's just allowing the aquifer to relax and come back toward normalcy. Reach its, but we, like I said, they never reach, we've never seen a well reach its normalcy unless there are certain areas in the aquifer that we've got sensors in now that we call bathtubs. Mm. That the water, as soon as you turn the pump off, the water level comes up and it levels out. And then you start pumping the next year, it goes down and it comes back. As soon as you turn the pumps off, it comes up and it levels out. At the same level? And, or and a, No, it is stepped down, usually. Yeah. So we're, we're like, okay, there's no interconnection between the, no inflow from the outside of the, that part of the aquifer any longer. You've drawn it down beyond that. And now you're, every, you've got, everybody's got a straw in the same Coke can. Mm-hmm. So you guys really need to start looking closely at what you're doing with the water. Right. Right, right. We don't understand yet how far that area goes. I mean, you would have to monitor an awful lot of wells. Yeah. Well, you uh, already are monitoring an awful lot of wells. But we're monitoring quite a few. Um, the goal, when we did the first 50-year water plan for the state of Kansas, my supervisor's goal was to have a monitored well in every county. Okay. But there's... 50 counties out there in Western Kansas, at least there's 105 in the state. I'm guessing there's at least 50 in the Western half of the state. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to pay for all this equipment. Plus the time. It's not, it's not like my boss says, it's, it's not a, it's not a, uh, the process of keeping these wells going and keeping this data up to date is not a simple task. I mean, it it takes money to get everything out there. It takes money to keep everything going. Mm-hmm. It takes money to check everything every couple times a year. Right. So that's a great great kind of segue into something else here. Um, talk to me a little bit of how you guys are using telemetry to make hopefully make your job easier. <laughs> um, that it does in that. Um, the farthest well, uh, the farthest well I have from my office is a mile or so from Colorado and two miles from Oklahoma. <laughs> that well is a seven and a half hour drive from my office. That's a trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so having that well, having wells like that on telemetry, I can look at it and say, yeah, here's the data. The data is the there every day for anybody that wants to look at it out there. But it also keeps me in the, it no, I keeps me from having to travel out there unnecessarily, especially like this last year uh, with the pandemic and not being able to travel that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I is you know if something went wrong, I could tell from the telemetry data, and then I could go say, okay, now I have to make a trip out there. But if it's not necessary, I didn't have to use that my time to go that far. I'd like to back up just a little bit before, as we get more into this discussion of, of telemetry and remote monitoring um, to when you first started this, it sounds like um, you were starting to put in some wells and sensors, what, more than a decade ago? 
Yeah, I, that was my. I started in April of 2007, and I was sitting on a drill rig in May of 2007. Okay, and what was the plan then? It was to put in these first three. We called them index wells, for lack of a better term. It's you know what's going on in. Like I said, there's three lobes in general of the High Plains Aquifer that come into Kansas. One in the south, one in the middle of the state, one in the northwest corner. So we put a well in each one of those things, and we wanted to see what was going on um, more than just the one snapshot a year. And so, like I said, everything was planned before I got here. I sat the drill rig, and then I met uh, Mr. Broderick for the first time. And explain who Uh, he is. So for listeners who Aren't familiar? <laughs> Jim Broderick. Jim Broderick is the uh, how? What would you call him? The ancient and wise <laughs> person at in situ. There, the sage of in situ. The, the, the sage. Um, they had been dealing the survey. People at the survey. My boss in general had been dealing with Jim ten years before I've got here, at least. Okay. Um. But he came out and we installed the first, started installing the telemetry. You know, at that time, uh, I'd worked with pressure transducers before and data loggers, but telemetry was a new thing for me. Uh, It was a new thing for the survey. Um, And like I said, there was no cell phone service. So those are all on the Iridium satellite system. Um, and we put in the three transducers. The wells were all drilled to the bottom of the Ogallala, and we screened the bottom of it. The doesn't, we don't screen the whole thing like a pumping well. We were just screening it like a monitoring well so that we could see what was happening in the entire thickness of the saturated thickness of the aquifer. So we were looking, put everything at the bottom. So, you know, 450-foot cables on these 100 PSI pressure transducers hooked to a telemetry system and then started farming the data back to us and posted it online. And everybody's like, this is pretty neat. You know, I can see what the, I can see what the aquifer is doing. Those first three led to, okay, maybe we need more. Um, The first step in that increase was we found um, some old USGS wells that the U.S. Geological Survey had drilled back in the 90s for different projects, and those wells were still there. It was like, can we use your well? And they're like, there's a well? <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but it's like, you know, we found, we found them by doing research papers and then going out there. My boss would send me out on what he calls Easter egg hunts. Okay. I would I would drive around looking for you know there's supposed to be a from GPS coordinates there should be a well somewhere in this field. Sounds kind of fun actually. Sometimes it can be. Sometimes it's like uh, okay, how do I get my truck stuck here? <laughs> <laughs> the joys of field work, right? Yeah. Have you ever got a truck stuck in a perfectly flat field? <laughs> <laughs> Some of those fields out there, when it starts to rain, if you've got street tires on, you're not going anywhere. It happens to the best of us. But uh, so we started to expand with existing wells, which for us, 
is a plus that we don't have to pay for drilling a new well. I mean, that's the biggest cost of doing these. But then we got money from, we got some more grants from the state to expand the program. And it was like, okay, so let's put one in here, here, and here. It's a decision-making process of where the critical areas were. So we actually added some more um, drilled monitoring wells. We might reach my boss's goal of one well per county someday. I mean, it's just, it, people are really interested in seeing how this happens. And I, like I said, that was the first project I was involved in um, for this long-term what's going on project. Um, we've had others. Um, we, we did a free, there's a free out of fight study um, on the Arkansas river or people that don't live in Kansas, the Arkansas river or people who, Refuse to argue with those two factors. Call it the Ark, <laughs> which is me. I'm Switzerland neutral. It's the Ark River. Um, we were monitoring long. That was a, that was the first long-term monitoring project. I think the survey got involved with. Um, we've been monitoring wells in a phreatif- in a uh, riparian zone, looking at the phreatif- how much water the phreatophytes use um, since 2001. Wow. Oh. So I have Excel spreadsheets with data um, approaching 9 million water level data points. Luckily, when they changed Excel in 2016, I wasn't limited to 64,000 rows anymore. And now I can put everything in a single column of, you know, four. I got one well, I think has 535,000 records. How do you Uh, use that? Um, well, when the project was ongoing and they were really looking into it, what they were looking at is the diurnal cycle of the phreatophytes. You could actually see the water level change during the day when the trees were using, uptaking water from the shallow aquifer. And then we also found out that um, cottonwoods uh, have deep tap roots because when the water level fell and the river dried out, there was still a diurnal cycle in the aquifer because they were pulling from pretty deep. Um, so they did a lot of study on that. Um, one phreatophyte study, you know, there had been proposals for years, different places that if you cut down the riparian zone, the tr- you know, the cottonwoods use a thousand gallons of water a day. Hmm. It's like, oh, they don't use that much water. It, you know, that's why the river's drying out. No, it's that irrigation well over there. Ah, there's the culprit. Over there. So, in one study, area they studied, the phreatophytes, they actually had these plots they controlled. One of them they left grow with Russian olives and um, salt cedar. And the other one they cut. And the other one they cut and they treated with the roots with a chemical to kill everything. And they found out that, yes, when you cut down the trees, it saves water for about a season. And then the native plants come back in and they use water too. Mm-hmm. So cutting them all, spending millions and millions of dollars to clear cut 
along the different rivers isn't going to save you enough water to justify what you want to do. But if you want to restore the land for cattle to graze on, you know, get rid of the Russian olives and put native grasses back in they graze on, it might be a useful thing to do. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to save a tremendous amount of water. You're still using water from the aquifer. What else are you working on? Uh, we have a project going on now in the, this side of the state. Uh, there was questions for a while from the people who are funding us going, why do you all work out in the western part? Well, that's where water that's where water quantity is a driving issue. How much water is left because there's a lot of money in ag. So this they were like, okay, so we need to do something closer on this side of the state. Um, so we're now monitoring the Kansas River alluvial aquifer, and we're looking at uh, the relationship between the river and the aquifer itself, how things are, how one affects the other. So we drilled 10 wells in along the edge of the aquifer river there. And we're monitoring those now. Uh, That project started 2018, I think. And what are you looking at? We're looking at the relationship between the river and the alluvial aquifer, the shallow aquifer. It's controlled by the river. You know, Um, there's not, like I said, on this side of the state, quantity is less of an issue um, than it is out west. So we started monitoring that in 2018. Um, I think we'll probably start a water quality monitoring program on this side of the state. Um, There's a couple of areas that one area in specific, they're looking at putting a gravel quarry in and how's that going to affect the water quality Mm -hmm. or the, you know, the gravel quarries are notoriously along near rivers because that's where the gravel was deposited. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we happen to have a well right next to where they're going to put in a new gravel quarry. So Fortunate for us, we're going to have let's be able to see the changes happen right there. So, how's it going to affect water level? How's it going to affect water chemistry? You know, it's nice to have these those kind of projects just pop up next to where you already have something installed. Absolutely, <laughs> right. makes it easy. Now, are you using uh, on on that project? Are you using telemetry as well? Yeah, we have some telemetry. We have those are all those wells are telemetry. Um, a lot of that was driven by uh, the people who, this legislator, who legislation, legislation that wanted to see that data. Um, it's nice to have wells on this side of the state. You know, it's easy to go visit them all in the <laughs> day versus driving 10 hours to get to one. Um, but they are, they're all on telemetry and it's, uh, it's convenient to have, I mean, it's convenient because the data is right there for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stakeholder engagement is key here. Yeah, stakeholder engagement. People who can who fund it like to see what they're funding. How has using telemetry really kind of changed the way you've worked? Whether it's using you know just the telemetry itself, or just also with the cloud services and things like that, what, how you can visualize your data. Um, it, it's changed the way we work in uh, being able to have the data in near real time. Um, the telemetry system transfers the data every 
four hours or six hours. I forget what I have them set at. And then we download it and then it gets posted on our site. So it's not real time. You can't go and see what the water level is right now by pushing a button. <laughs> right. You know, in ideal situations, we could do that. But the cost, cost benefit analysis says, you know, this is good enough. You know, once a day, twice a day, update. Right. We're doing pretty well. We're doing we're doing a thousand percent better than we were doing 10 years ago. Now, Ed, uh, you know, we've been working with you guys for a long time um, on this. Um, and as part of that, you actually were able to be a beta tester for us for some of our new telemetry. Um, kind of tell us how, how was that experience and kind of what are, what are kind of your views on, on that type of technology and where it might be going? I will say, like I said, when we first put these sensors in, it was on the first sensors we put in were on the Iridium satellite system because mm-hmm. that's all we had um, that was would reach those areas. And then we advanced on to um, the old systems that we had. We had uh, telephone modems, and they had modems in them. So we were able to do the cellular technology. And now this new technology... Um, you know, now now you got Bluetooth. I don't have to. I don't have to carry three different cables with me to go out and mm-hmm. check a well. You know, hook up, download. That one of our big things is data redundancy. So mm-hmm. you've got the you got the telemetry data on your server on one server. We got the telemetry data on our server, and I also record on the sensor itself. Mm-hmm. And I download that, and I have that in a database on my computer. Mm-hmm. Why is that important for you? Um, it's important that it's all, we always have the data. It's, it's backup archive data. I mean, like I said, I've got that one project that's been going for 2001 and I've still got that data on my, I'm actually working through that data to now take 20 spreadsheets over the last 20 years and put them all on one spreadsheet. Cause now you can, you can have, don't have a limit on data size. So to have that data, long-term research projects are expensive to maintain and keep. But what you can, what you end up, we've gone back through data and go, wow, look at that. Look at the, look what the barometric pressure does to that well. Hmm. Why does it do that? We have the database that we can look back through 15 years of data and say, well, this well does it and this well does it. And this is what we've got found here. So we've developed new things from these long-term data sets. There aren't a whole lot of them in the country. They were hard to set up and maintain. They're becoming much easier to do. Um, Like I said, with the new, the new stuff, the, I, I beta tested the new system and, um, that was interesting being a beta tester and talking through everything that went on. And I'd known this was coming out for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I've, I harassed the developer. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> when do I get this? When do I get this? Yeah. When do I get this? And by this, you mean ViewLink. They came yesterday. I haven't been to I, the first half of them came yesterday. I haven't been to the office to unpack them yet, but I got the FedEx notification 
on my phone go. that your packages and, have been delivered. And and the, the, these 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 this is this is not the beta units. These are actually the production. These are actual right. units. The actual right. I will write a letter to. I have to write my letter to the director of the geologic survey, who can then goes to the center of research at Can University of Kansas that says. Can I go out to the field and put these in, please? <laughs> I got them. Can I go out now? That's I exciting. Have I have to spend the night, but I want to go out and put these in. I have to do that. I know. Well, again, those are those are the, I guess, the new the new world we're living in, and the challenges of the pandemic, and and, and the the challenges of the pandemic twofold: being able to put them in, but then this whole last year, I've been able to follow my data without going out there, mm-hmm. right? Ed, how did you get into this line of work? I swore when I when I went to grad school at Boise, Idaho, we drove across the state of Kansas, and I swore it would be the last time I ever drove across the state of Kansas. <laughs> so I jinxed myself, and I now drive across. When, uh, during a normal year, I drive across the state of Kansas every two or three months. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I, I jinxed myself big time. Um, I went to grad. I went to undergrad and grad school as a much non-traditional student. Uh, other things came up. Took me twenty years to finish my undergraduate degree. Hmm. Um, and then I went to grad school in Idaho. I went to undergrad in Ohio, and I studied aquifer characterization. It was hmm. my big thing. Um, we drilled wells. We put sensors in. Um, there we weren't monitoring continuously. Um, we were just monitoring during tests, during flood events, um, that kind of stuff. So I got introduced to the different kind of systems and different kind of data loggers, um, on, and what the aquifer would do, you know, uh, I hand measured a lot of wells and it was, we drilled a well field along the Boise river. And I started seeing the interaction between my water levels in my wells and what the river was doing. And you could actually look at the stages of the river by the water levels you measured, hand measured. So I put a couple sensors in there, measured for a couple of days because we didn't have the capabilities at that time to do everything I do now. And that got me interested. Then I, um, Ended up going to Germany for about a year uh, to work on a started a PhD program. I worked for a research institute over in Germany, hmm. and don't speak German very well, and still don't speak German very well. <laughs> <laughs> and this job came up at the Kansas Geological Survey that was doing everything I was doing that they were I was starting to do in Germany with the drilling, the monitoring of the systems, and the groundwater and uh, it seemed like a good fit. They hired me. I moved to Kansas and uh, started this. Like I said, my first project was to put those monitoring wells in and put in data loggers. And that was my introduction to that. And since then it's growing and growing and growing. It's, I still do a lot of the aquifer characterization in developing tools and equipment on this side of the state. Um, But you're also characterizing the aquifers by looking at your data from your sensors you have out in that side of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, water levels will tell you a lot about your aquifer. 
especially if you've got water levels and you've also got usage numbers, mm-hmm. you know, the metered usage numbers, you know, they're using the same amount of water this year as they used last year, but last year they dropped six inches of depth and water level. And this year they dropped two feet of water. So what's that tell you about the geology? The geology changed just, and you can tell that just by looking at your water level sensors and you can tell when it changed. So Ed, given what you're seeing in the aquifer and the breadth of your experience and the changes in technology that you've seen, what is going to be critical going forward to your ability to um, really understand what's going on and be able to address some of the really big issues that you're seeing? I think we're taking steps to go in that direction. Um, I mean, from the once a year snapshot of the aquifer to monitoring one well in each lobe of the aquifer 24-7 to now multiple wells in each part of the aquifer um, has told the end users a lot. We've got a lot of data out of it, and we've presented that data at conferences at, like I said, there's these groundwater management districts. Um, My supervisor goes out, Ronnie Wilson goes out every year to these their their annual meetings and presents them with maps and data. And it leads, it's led to, well, we want, we need more of these wells. Yeah, you probably do need more of these wells because again, you know, there's 27, 28,000 irrigation wells out there and we've got 20 wells monitoring that area. Wow. So more wells, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fund, fund, fund them, and we will put them up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that would be important. I mean, everybody is starting to realize. I mean, it's it. They've known it all along. They were mon- They were mining aquifer monetarily. I understand they have to maximize their property rights and maximize their incomes from these to keep things going. It's not cheap to run these enterprises. Um, Most of the area out there is still, they're not corporate farm. They're not big corporate farms, but there are large family farms and there are large, smaller corporations that are running multiple farms um, out there. And they understand that, if they want to last for any length of time, they're going to have to do something. And this information that we're providing them is a good first step. Like I said, we don't make the decisions. We provide the data and the more data, I think the more data we can provide them, the better it'll be for them. Um, And the state of technology um, costs keep coming down. Um, to do this, um, you know, it still takes time, but I don't have to go out there every month to download data now and then come back, compile it, force it up onto a spreadsheet, force a spread, uh, hydrograph or data numbers onto the internet. They self-populate now on the wells we have. Um, that's all set up and done. So it's just a matter of getting more locations and 
somebody funding the research to get out there and put these numbers in. A lot of them want to do it. You know, it does take time. It does take an effort to keep these maintain and keep these system, these locations going. But I think it's very important to keep going. So Ed, the data that, that you're collecting right now is really primarily being used um, for the state. However, is it also it's also being used kind of as an, on a national level as well? Correct. Yeah, we are part of the uh, USGS NOCWIS. I think it's NOCWIS is the acronym for, for it. Uh, national Groundwater Monitoring Network. Yeah, the so, National Groundwater Monitoring Network. We we our data feeds into the USGS data space, um, both the annual water level measurements and these continuous water level measurements. So that it's now part of a national network. Um, most of my, my work's all focused on the state of Kansas, but there's a bigger picture out there. The Ogallaw Aquifer is a large aquifer and people are concerned about it all over. And groundwater in general in the United States is a concern, um, just not just in Kansas, but everywhere else, California, Colorado, Utah, uh, everybody has their concerns. So the USGS has this national system and our data feeds into their system, is connected and feeds into their system. Right. And is that, um, that system, my understanding is, is more of a, it's done by more uh, kind of either state agencies such as Kansas Geological Survey or things like that, correct? And not so much as just the, the, the USGS. The USGS, USGS is kind of overseeing that, correct? Yeah, the USGS oversees that. Uh, they provide funding for it. Um, the, they don't, they have their stream gauging system across the United States. They have thousands and thousands of stream gauges. So they do USGS field water office is mostly concerned with, um, surface water and their groundwater data is provided mostly by state agencies like us. Well, the nice thing is that kind of demonstrates the the value that KGS is providing to kind of the national monitoring network. Uh, your your yeah. vital component to that. Yeah, we've we've been complimented many times from outside of the state on the availability of our data and how much data we actually collect and have. You know, the water use state the water use data and water level data is not something that every state has. Mm-hmm. No, it's a critical point. I think another point I, I know, I, I certainly in my career have benefited um, from Kansas Geological Survey data and the research that has come out from that data. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the idea of looking at barometric impacts. Uh, that is a, a real critical part that I don't know if would have been uh, some of the work that's been done by KGS on barometric efficiencies, I don't think could have been replicated elsewhere unless you had that continuous data set. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been noticed unless, you know, sometimes we had, we used to have students come in for summer programs and, you know, you give the student a data set and say, see what you can find. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and somebody, somebody plotted barometric pressure against, the water level in a vented sensor. So mm-hmm. you didn't sorry subtract out the barometric pressure. It was something that, and it was like, you know, they're, they're totally opposite 
you know, barometric pressure goes up, water level goes down. Right. And what that has also led us is looking at error analysis on our hand measurements. You know, you could, you, the water level can change in those wells by a foot, just from barometric pressure. Hmm. So when are you, when, you, when did you measure it? And, you know, you measured it this year and then this year, what's the difference in weather? Right. You know, how much is, how much is that influenced? Right. That's a good point of why, you know, people always ask, why does the weather matter when I'm measuring a water, a groundwater level? Yeah. It, it actually can matter. <laughs> yeah. The barometric pressure affects the water level in the well instantaneously and slowly works its way down through the formation to affect the aquifer. But in the well, in that borehole, that water level is affected instantaneously by barometric pressure change. Well, Ed, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, We're going to look forward to keeping in touch with you and hearing more about your work and also the state of the High Plains Aquifer. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, It was enlightening for me, too. Um, I've listened to your other podcasts and learned a few things along the way. Well, we're very happy to hear that. Ed, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. This is Aquapod, brought to you by In-Situ. Please subscribe to Aquapod wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on insitu.com. That's in-situ.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Eric Robinson, and Lauren Ryan with a big assist from Josiah Holman and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. And until then, take care out there.